On the 2nd of January this year, a peaceful protest began in the small town of Janozhian in southwest Kazakhstan. They were protesting over rising fuel prices. Soon, protests began to spread across the country. Things were beginning to snowball, and within 48 hours, the protests had reached the largest cities, including the commercial capital Almaty and the capital Nuru Sultan. Protesters were now beginning to ask for political change in the former Soviet Republic. It was at this time that the police stepped in. Armored vehicles, grenades and tear gas were used. And then it evolved again into something much more aggressive and violent. Decades of resentment towards the previous president, Nurusultan Nazarbayev, who still had a lot of influence, bubbled to the surface, with protesters chanting, all men go, as they stormed government buildings and the presidential residence. By January the 7th, just five days after it all started, with a small peaceful protest, President Tokayev ordered national forces to shoot to kill without warning, claiming that 20,000 bandits were ready to attack the city of Almaty and that a countrywide coup had to be stopped. By the end of the day, the Interior Ministry revealed that at least 163 civilians and 17 police officers had been killed and that almost 2,000 people were injured. Nearly 10,000 were arrested in connection with the deadly riots. So how did the peaceful protest over fuel price rises escalate so quickly? And what does it have to do with organized crime? Well, that's what we're going to find out in this first episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thinlea Wynn. In this series, We'll take a deep dive into the Global Organized Crime Index and take a look at some of the biggest organized crime threats facing countries and regions around the world. In this first episode, we're going to take a look at the huge Central Asian nation of Kazakhstan with Dr. Erika Marat. Erika is an associate professor at the College of International Security Affairs at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., She's a specialist in security and military institutions in Eurasia, as well as on social mobilization and organized crime. I began by asking Erika to give us a short history of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is uh, one of the largest countries in the world. It is, in fact, ninth largest country in the world. It is almost the size of India and Western Europe, but it is also sparsely populated. Only 19 million people live in Kazakhstan. For about 70 years, it was under the Soviet regime. And then uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, it was ruled by an autocratic uh, leader, Nusultan Nazarbayev, for also about three decades, who didn't allow any political opposition to emerge. 
but he did expand the Kazakhstan economy and created conditions for the middle class to rise. So for a while, he did enjoy some genuine support in the population. But as he aged and as economic growth slowed down in Kazakhstan, more and more people became unhappy with the course the country is taking, with political stagnation, and with the huge gap between the rich political elites and the rest of the population, especially in rural areas. At the beginning of this year, Kazakhstan was in the news because of the sort of groundswell of public protests that, that sort of erupted. Can you give us a short rundown of events that led to these protests? So the first protests, they started in western Kazakhstan, in rural areas of Zhanaozian. This is oil-rich and resource-rich part of Kazakhstan, but that is also populated with some of the most impoverished groups who work in the oil sector. So the dichotomy of the place being naturally rich, but the population poor and starving, that dichotomy has created really deep grievances among workers in the oil fields and the local population. And they've been organizing for almost a decade now. So this time when they organized in early January, their grievances resonated with many other parts of Kazakhstan. We saw how different groups in urban areas and in rural areas, they joined the plight of people living in Janozian, and they came out on the streets with their own sets of grievances, be they economic or political. So some youth movements, they demanded for better political representation and democratic openings in political debates in in Kazakhstan. Others demanded fight against corruption. So many different segments of the population came on the streets joining what first started in Western Kazakhstan. And it wasn't really entirely unexpected for Kazakhstan watchers because we saw how um, in the past couple of years, Different types of protests were taking place, but they were taking place across Kazakhstan at different time periods. And now we saw all those protests joining together within the same time period and presenting themselves as this national movement against the current political regime in the country. That's really interesting. So, you know, one of the things that I saw when I was doing research was about talking about how these protests were about, you know, originated as gas prices. But based on what you're saying is that, you know, they're rooted in grievances around corruption and inequality that have gone back years, if not decades. Is that correct to say? Yes, absolutely. So the gas prices were a trigger point, were a tipping point for people to come out on the streets in Western Kazakhstan. But it wasn't really the entirety of uh, grievances in that part of Kazakhstan or in bigger cities in Kazakhstan. The grievances are really deeper about political stagnation, about lack of political representation, and about really enormous levels of corruption at the top. And we're talking about billions and billions of dollars accumulated among small groups of elites who are benefiting unfairly from the resources of Kazakhstan. And the rest of the population are sort of left to survive on their own from trickle-down economics that also slowed down in the last few years. Now, you said that you were sort of 
you were not exactly surprised because you have seen some of the protests happening a bit more sporadically in, in, in different areas. What about in terms of how quickly they seem to have escalated from, you know, something that started in the West to becoming almost like a national movement? So, yes, people watching Kazakhstan, we were not surprised by how it became a national movement. What we were uh, surprised by is how the government reacted. There was a chain of events that led to a really violent suppression by the government. What started as a peaceful movement in this large country, really sparsely populated, as a peaceful movement for change, we thought that it would continue for some days and maybe weeks because it was a non-violent mobilization of uh, regular citizens, ordinary citizens. But then it was hijacked by provocateurs, especially in Almaty city. It's the largest and the wealthiest city in southern Kazakhstan. And the government used it as a pretext to deploy wholesale lethal violence against peaceful protesters and killed hundreds of people as a result. Before we uh, go on to the government response, I actually want to touch on what you said just now about uh, the you know, provocateurs. That also happened quite quickly, right? Just within a few days, suddenly there were lootings and killings, very different from how the protests originally started out, which was really quite peaceful. Do you remember how it changed so suddenly? Um, what's your analysis of how it turned from this peaceful protest into this violent uprising? It changed pretty quickly from peaceful protests to violence uh, on the streets. And there are lots of conspiracy theories how it happened. Some experts and journalists point at how it was curated by political forces opposing the current regime led by President Tokayev as a way to sabotage him and uh, to undermine his power in the country. But we really don't have good investigations, really good accounts, trustful accounts of how exactly it worked. We know that there were violent crowds that attacked government buildings and government property in Almaty. They were then joined by looters who looted private businesses, um, offices and shops in Almaty. And it all looked really scary because it felt like the city was not under the control of the government. And so the state lost the control of the city and uh, those criminal and violent groups were ransacking, ransacking the city. So it was really, really scary in the beginning of January. But it's also important to note that very often mass protests are accompanied by looting, especially if those mass protests are not they don't have uh, one leader or a unifying movement that can coordinate everyone who joined mobilization. So it's a little bit of both. It's probably there is there has been a coordinated dispatch of violent mobs to provoke chaos in Almaty, but then there were just chaotic crowds uh, who use this moment of lawlessness to attack 
businesses and to loot. So a little bit of both. But again, we don't have clear accounts and invest independent investigations of what exactly happened. And that complicates our analysis at this point. Do you have any idea as to why there hasn't been any detailed investigation analysis on who these people are and what their motivation may be? Um, Is it just the political landscape of Kazakhstan that things are quite secretive and it's difficult to sort of find out who's who? Yes, the political landscape and the political modus operandi by the ruling regime in Kazakhstan is to be secretive and to dispatch the stuck-down narrative about what happened. And Takayev tried to maintain this discourse of 20,000 terrorists in order to justify, frankly, an overreaction to this mass mobilization in Kazakhstan. He ordered to shoot without warning to anyone who was on the streets. During uh, the days of chaos, he dispatched armed police against protesters. And contrary to all expectations that Kazakhstan's regime is not as brutal as some of the other post-Soviet autocracies, like Belarus, for instance, or Russia, no one really expected that Tokayev would be so ruthless against uh, protesters. Um, that instead of, let's say, arresting looters and provocateurs, he chose to resort to lethal force. And most of the people who died, they were just bystanders. There were people who went about their ordinary lives. There were children, a couple of children who who were killed by government forces. There were scholars, there were activists, there were there were elderly people who came under government fire and eventually eventually died as a result. So the government really continues to struggle with explaining to the population what exactly happened and why it chose the methods that were so brutal, unexpectedly brutal for both domestic and international observers. Sort of continuing, you know, with, with that theme, with the provocateurs, some of the human rights activists and observers have spoken out and you alluded to in your earlier answer as well as to how, you know, organized some of those looters and provocateurs seems to be and that sometimes the police disappeared when they turned up or before the looters turned up and then the police reappeared after things have been destroyed and, you know, there was violence. Is it possible that there is some sort of collusion that perhaps there might be some elements of organized crime syndicates that might be involved? Yes, absolutely. There were syndicates, uh, organized crime syndicates involved in stirring up chaos in Almaty. And the most notorious and well-covered case was the involvement of criminal authority uh, known as Wild Arman, so his first name is Arman, and he is uh, labeled as Wild Arman, who is currently arrested. And I think he will he will serve quite a lengthy jail time now. And the reports there suggest that he was mobilized by competing political forces, or so political forces competing with Tokayev's regime in order to stir chaos in Almaty. This suggests that there are indeed links between political elites and the criminal underworld. Um, And those links are currently reshuffled and they're changing in the aftermath of this violence, this shocking violence. So 
we see that the current government is trying to limit the activity of criminal authorities. We know another criminal authority, he's known as Serik, Serik Galava or Serik Head. He is known as um, a thief in law. That's you know, a whole separate category of post-Soviet <laughs> organized crime. I don't know if we have time to go into that. But anyways, he is a, a criminal authority who likely has connections in Russia. And what this suggests is that existing political links between elites and criminal authorities, they, they're recalibrated at this point. They're, they're, they're changing in the aftermath of the mass protests. And we don't know what kind of shape it will take in the coming weeks and months, but I think there will be changes. But we also know from Kazakhstan that the links between the state and the criminal underworld, they exist on different levels. They exist on just level of rank-and-file police officers dealing with street criminals and providing protections to street criminals. And likely there are also more top-level connections, informal connections, and provision of uh, protections by government elites, political elites, uh, to larger criminal syndicates who in turn have connections with uh, the Russian criminal underworld. So these links do exist. I think, again, they are recalibrated at this point. But um, nevertheless, in a country with really abundance of natural resources, political elites still do maintain connections with the criminal underworld. You know, what you've just said actually fits very neatly or underlines the findings from the Global Organized Crime Index, you know, which measures levels of organized crime in a country and then assess their resilience to organized criminal activity. Their finding was that in Kazakhstan, state embedded actors are the most influential criminal actor type in the country. And, and based on what you just said, it does sound like, you know, there are multiple levels, but they seem to different groups of state embedded actors work with different groups of criminal and organized crime syndicates. Uh, and, and they've sort of part of become part of this political play in the protests. Yes, that is, that is correct. I don't think that criminal authorities had a big involvement in other parts of Kazakhstan in January. I think the center of political and criminal nexus was in Almaty. But the overall description that uh, state-embedded actors collaborate with uh, criminal authorities, it it is accurate. What is important to note is also that aside from political connections with the criminal underworld, There's lots of criminal and corrupt activity that takes place in the government uh, when it comes to smuggling of natural resources or just the general cryptocracy uh, surrounding natural resources in Kazakhstan. So that is to say that the criminal underworld does play a role in Kazakhstan, but it's not as prominent as in other parts of Central Asia because there are so many other sources of rents for state actors in Kazakhstan. I'm I'm comparing Kazakhstan to um, countries like Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan, where, for instance, drug trafficking is the biggest source of rents 
for local politicians and state actors. In Kazakhstan, drug trafficking is a source of rent. So drugs coming from Afghanistan, heroin and opiates coming from Afghanistan and then going to Russia. It is a source of rents, but there are many other different types of rents uh, existing uh, in Kazakhstan as well. And that allows state actors to engage in criminal and corrupt activities without necessarily the involvement of the criminal underworld. But again, there are connections still, and there are several major criminal groups, organized criminal groups that are functioning in in Kazakhstan. And the important quality of those groups is that they do have transnational connections and they do facilitate trafficking of illicit goods through the territory of Kazakhstan as well. I have a few follow-up questions. One is, you know, you were talking about how a lot of um, organized crime and corruption in Kazakhstan is linked to its natural resources. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of natural resources they are and how, how they're linked to these illegal activities. Kazakhstan prides itself for containing the entire periodic table on its territory as being one of the few countries in the world to do that. Uh, but of course, some its most lucrative sources of natural resources is oil and gas on the Caspian uh, shore. But Kazakhstan is also a major producer of uranium, of agricultural products, of different precious metals. So it's a exporter of uh, many different natural resources. But I think still the the biggest uh, source of enrichment for the Kazakhstan elites is the energy sector. Another important part of uh, Kazakhstan economy is that it's a transit country for China's Belt and Road initiative connecting China to Europe through Kazakhstan and it's in the, it's, a, it's a major partner for China in that way and its customs and border control agency is another lucrative source of informal enrichment for Kazakhstan's elites and the the reason why you know customs is is, is an important source is because like you said earlier it's because it's sort of like an transit country, would you say it's an, an important transit country for illicit goods? Corruption in the customs uh, service across former Soviet space does not necessarily have to just rely on illicit goods. It is um, any any kind of transit of illicit or illicit goods creates opportunities for um, bribes and informal protections. Some goods are not declared properly or may contain some illicit products as well. And this is a known practice across uh, former Soviet space. And I think for Kazakhstan, this is yet another source of elite enrichment because of the significance of the checkpoint between China and Kazakhstan, the largest checkpoint, Korgos, between China and Kazakhstan that connects China to Europe, to London, by a railroad. We know from journalistic investigations that Kazakhstan elites, including former President Nazarbayev's family, enjoy informal access to rents from that checkpoint. And when we say illicit goods, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, we mean quite a wide range from things like drugs to oil, alcohol, consumer goods, right? It pretty much encompasses different different types of goods. Yes, absolutely. It encompasses 
all types of goods, but specifically, of course, drugs, um, drugs coming from Afghanistan, especially heroin. In the case of Central Asia, the most uh, largest shipments of heroin from Afghanistan, they pass Central Asia undetected in collaboration between various state and non-state actors involved in coordinating those large shipments. And from time to time, we hear shipments as big as 400 kilograms of heroin amounting to about 20 millions of dollars being interdicted in one of the countries. But those reports are rare, and that suggests that large shipments of heroin and opiates from Afghanistan, most of them go unobstructed across Central Asia. But then there is also the rise of synthetic drugs, both within Kazakhstan and exported from other parts of Central Asia and from Afghanistan. Now Afghanistan is becoming a major producer of synthetic drugs as well. And that is also a big emerging problem for Kazakhstan today that increases corruption in, in the police and fuels organized criminal activity as well in, in Kazakhstan. To, to the answer to your question, yes, drugs are the main illicit goods in uh, Central Asia, but uh, smuggling of alcohol, cigarettes, energy products, they're also prevalent in Central Asia, but nothing compares to smuggling of drugs. Mm -hmm. Just now when you were talking about two of these sort of organized known figures from the organized crime world who uh, were involved in the protests, can you talk a bit more about it? I mean, this podcast is about organized crime after all. So we want to hear about, you know, post-USSR organized crime landscape in, in, in places like Kazakhstan. So during the Soviet regime, there was this tradition of organized crime community known as Thieves in Law. And it's a mafia-like structure with its internal procedures and promotion procedures and bureaucracy and honor codes. And that tradition outlived the Soviet regime, and it continues still today that Russian criminal groups in Russia, they promote various criminal syndicates from former Soviet space as the heads of criminal underworld in those countries. So let's say there would be a thief in law for, or thieves in law for Uzbekistan or for Georgia, uh, for Ukraine, for Kyrgyzstan. And they would, those thieves in law are crowned in Russia by the, by thieves in law in Russia. And some countries were able to move away to break with this tradition. Uh, countries like Georgia were able to break with this tradition. I think in Tajikistan, thieves in law don't have the same influence as they used to in the Soviet regime, but the reasons for that are different. It's the civil war in Tajikistan in the 90s that severed those connections. Um, but in Kazakhstan, um, there are still thieves in law uh, with strong connections to their Russian counterparts and to their Central Asian counterparts. They are not as dominating against the state as, let's say, in in Kyrgyzstan, because the state in Kazakhstan is still very, very strong. It is a capable state that is able to prosecute criminal authorities, and it's doing so in the aftermath of January protests as well. But there there continue to be other uh, criminal groups that are not yet targeted by by the state. We don't see any signs of uh, state um, repressing them. Now, one of the things that the Global Organized Crime Index said about Kazakhstan is that, you know, 
that the country is party to all the relevant treaties um, that pertain to organized crime. It has bilateral extradition agreements with quite a lot of nations. And, you know, so it's it has international commitments as well as sort of domestic legal legislation to sort of deter organized crime. Do you think the current situation, those international as well as domestic um, legislation and agreements, do you think that's sufficient uh, to actually respond to the threat of organized crime in Kazakhstan? Yes, I think Kazakhstan does care about its international image and abiding by the international agreements that it's part of now. But the dynamics uh, for suppressing organized crime is really domestic. The the reasons for suppressing organized crime are more domestic than uh, international pressure. It is more about inter-elite struggle and Tokayev's regime now trying to establish his political regime, frankly, because Tokayev has been in power only for three years and he still needs to gain the support and try to become as domineering of a leader as his predecessor. So his governments and his regimes moves against you know policies against the criminal underworld and especially bigger criminal organizations it will really be uh, preconditions on how he is trying to establish himself emerge as a, as a national national leader and if there are some opportunities for the state to rely on the activities of organized criminal groups to then, you know, control smaller groups, then I can see a scenario where those criminal groups, you know, the loyal criminal groups, loyal to the political regime, they will be led to function in Kazakhstan. And this is a common practice all across former Soviet space, that some criminal groups are loyal to the ruling regime and they are allowed to exist. How about civil society in Kazakhstan? How strong is it? And are they able to sort of play a watchdog role when it comes to things like organized crime? Civil society in Kazakhstan is uh, emergent. It is becoming stronger by Central Asian standards. It is not necessarily uh, organized in NGOs, but there are smaller collectives and individual activists or smaller media outlets that uh, provide that, that are that engage in investigations and try to shed light on corruption and criminal activities in the country. Um, there are organizations who deal with, for instance, the drug use in Kazakhstan, especially synthetic drugs in Kazakhstan. And they try to pressure law enforcement to curtail production of synthetic drugs. And they're not always successful in doing that. Nevertheless, they try and they allow the public to be more aware of the developments in the society, rates of trafficking, rates of addiction in the society. But if we compare activity of civil society in Kazakhstan to, let's say, the strengths of civil society in countries like Ukraine or Georgia, of course, um, the difference is large. The, the difference is quite large because civil society in Kazakhstan is still weak compared to other countries in former Soviet space. Nevertheless, it is uh, growing stronger, it is expanding, and more people are turning to activism in order to express their political grievances. 
I guess partly also because, you know, like you said, right at the beginning, right? I mean, you had a, 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 a strongman leader um, for three decades and Tokayev's only been in power for the last two or three years. So I guess in a way, civil society is still finding its feet as well. Yes, exactly. Do you think, obviously, current big news is what's happening with Ukraine, right? What's the, the invasion in Ukraine? Do you think that the situation in Ukraine will have any impact at all on, on, on Kazakhstan? Yes, it will have. It is happening right now. And it's really multifaceted impact on Kazakhstan right now. One largest impact on uh, Kazakhstan and the rest of Central Asia right now is uh, sanctions against Russia and the devaluation of ruble are being felt in Kazakhstan as well. So the national currency Tenge is also in free fall, uh, showing the strong connection with Russian economy. Kazakhstan's economy economy, strong connection with Russian economy. In Kazakhstan and Russia, they share the second largest border in the world. Uh, lots of economic connections with uh, with Russia. That's one. Another is there is an uneasy feeling feeling in Kazakhstan that the rhetoric, the nationalist nationalistic and fascist rhetoric used by Putin against Ukraine, is part of the this hate rhetoric that Putin and his subordinates use against Kazakhstan as well from time to time, claiming that Kazakhstan is not a real country and it really belongs to Russia and that Russia has a historic right on at least northern parts of Kazakhstan populated with uh, large groups of uh, ethnic Russians. So there is this unease in Kazakhstan about what's what's next, what's after Ukraine, if Putin is able to stay in power and succeeds in Ukraine, which we'll see if that actually happens and in what way. But there is an, an uneasy feeling in Kazakhstan that Kazakhstan might be next in this rhetoric of hate and uh, restoration of the Soviet regime by Putin. So that's another another way that developments in Ukraine are impacting Kazakhstan. And then finally, also, we saw some reports of Russia approaching Kazakhstan with a request to deploy military contingents from Kazakhstan to Ukraine. We don't know exactly if Russia did, in fact, approach Kazakhstan. We only saw NBC in the United States reporting um, that it, in fact, did. Kazakhstan denies any such consideration that Kazakhstan will support Russia's war in Ukraine. So, But it's a complicated geopolitical position for Kazakhstan right now, especially given that uh, President Tokayev requested that uh, Russian-led military um, alliance, CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization, deploys troops in Kazakhstan to suppress chaos and mobilization in Kazakhstan in January. And CSTO troops, regional military contingents, for the first time in the organization's history, were indeed deployed to Kazakhstan to deal with domestic dissent. Do you think the landscape of organized crime in Kazakhstan will change? Yes, I think uh, as a result of protests, what happens in Kazakhstan usually, and especially now, is whenever the government feels threatened and feels like there are enough people to come out to the streets to protest against the government, uh, the gov- government expands its 
police control across the country. It happened in 2011 when government violently suppressed small protests again in Western Kazakhstan. And according to official reports, killed 16 people. Back then, uh, the government expanded its punitive state punitive control of um, society and tried to uh, use police force to both preempt and suppress uh, public mobilization. So we see this happening again right now, that the government is expanding policing of the society. And that also means that uh, the government will be able to also have a better control of criminal groups, over criminal groups. And we'll try to make sure that criminal groups are not again used by regime opponents against uh, against the government. Mm. Um, I guess last question is, do you have any advice then for international organizations or neighboring countries who might be concerned about the organized crime activities in Kazakhstan? I mean, what advice would you give to them in dealing with these issues in the near future? My main recommendation is to create conditions in which criminal activities and corruption become more costly for regime incumbents. And we can do that through three different approaches. First is supporting democratic processes, public debate, political competition, free and fair elections, because the more transparency we give to the political process, the costlier it is going to be for political incumbents to use informal means or connections with the criminal underworld in achieving their own goals. Second is to expand sanctions on corrupt and kleptocratic elites who may or may not rely on organized crime, but still engage in criminal activities uh, within the state as being part of the state. So expand sanctions and freeze assets, especially in Western countries, that is an effective tool against kleptocracy and corruption in countries like Kazakhstan. And then finally, I think it's very important to support civil society and especially investigative journalism that can shed light on uh, not only kleptocratic elites, but also organized crime in the country and and show uh, different links uh, that exist between the state, between rank and file police officers, uh, street dealers, street level dealers, or between elite members and political elite members and uh, heads of criminal groups. So investigative journalism is really powerful in Central Asia in uh, spreading awareness in the public and showing through credible reports, through verified reports on the existing links, and and thus also, of course, increasing costs of uh, corruption for political incumbents. Let me just add that Kazakhstan has a really robust and capable state, capable institutions that can deal with many different types of organized crime. So the state capacity is not an issue for countries like Kazakhstan. It's a wealthy country with robust state institutions. Uh, It all comes down to political will and interest of political incumbent elites to deal with large-scale crime, things like drug trafficking or corruption in border areas, uh, in border checkpoints. That 
political will can only be achieved through more transparent political process and competitive political process, democratization of Kazakhstan as a political system. And that's, I think, is a tougher challenge for international community than increasing state capacity, capabilities um, that very most corrupt countries usually lack. Thank you so much, Erica, for coming on this podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on Covering Kazakhstan. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Index and to Dr. Erica Murad for joining us today. Now, if you want to read the country profile for Kazakhstan, it's available in the podcast notes, where you can also find a link to the Global Organized Crime Index. The Global Organized Crime Index lists 193 countries around the world and scores their level of criminality and resilience. It's a fascinating resource and can be accessed by anyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode, where we will be discussing conflict and organized crime, the case of Syria. That's it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thin Le Win. Thanks for listening. <laughs>